Uh, Some of you might know we are in the middle of a series on the book of Philemon. And Philemon is this little book, it's this little letter towards the end of the New Testament. And it's very small and it's easy to kind of overlook. So what we're doing in this series is we're slowing down a little bit. And we're taking four weeks and just digging into the letter of Philemon and trying to dig out any truths and any, um, any principles that we can get from the, from the letter and apply them to our lives. So let me just do a little bit of review for us. So this is our third week in the series, and there's a little bit of review. The, the, there's three main characters in the letter of Philemon. The first one is a man named the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a leader in the early church. But what's really interesting about his life is before he was a follower of Jesus, before he was a leader in the early church, he was a Jewish leader named, and he went by the name Saul. And when he went by the name Saul, what he did, he he literally made it his goal in life to go find Christians. This movement of Christianity that Jesus started was just taking off. And Paul, he was formerly called Saul, he made it his goal in life to go find Christians and to persecute them and to put them in prison. And we even know of one instance where he found a Christian leader and he oversaw his death. So that's, that's who... Saul was, and then he had this amazing encounter with Jesus. Jesus literally appeared to Saul, and through that, Saul gave his life to Christ and then went into like full-time ministry out sharing the gospel and sharing the story of Jesus with the people around him. And what's really fascinating is the point when he's writing this letter to Philemon, he is actually now under house arrest because he won't stop talking about Jesus. So we have this man named Paul who used to be called Saul, and at this point in his life, He's under house arrest for persecuting Christians and that what, that's what he used to do. So he had this radical transformation and we kind of see his life like make an entire 180. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is the first character we're looking at in this, in this letter. The second one is this man named Philemon who the letter's written after and Paul is writing to this man named Philemon and he lives in the city of Colossae in the city of Colossae. And we're gonna put it up on a map so you guys can see it real quick. So the Apostle Paul is over here in Rome under house arrest and he's writing this letter 1,200 miles away, all the way to the city of Colossae, where Philemon is a leader in the church in Colossae. And remember, back then, they didn't have like vehicles and airplanes and things like that that we have now. So it's, it's a big deal to get a letter 1,200 miles away to a different city. And the reason Paul is writing this letter to Philemon is because Philemon owned this slave named Onesimus. He owned a slave named Onesimus. And what happened is... Onesimus somehow ran away from Colossae and ran away from his slave owner Philemon and made the journey 1,200 miles all the way to Rome. And we think he probably went to Rome because at that time Rome had millions of people living there and he knew that if he could get there, he could kind of blend in. But he got there and that's not, ended up, it's not how it actually went down. He gets to Rome and somehow he runs into the apostle Paul. He runs into this leader under house arrest named Paul and through their relationship, Paul actually leads Onesimus into a relationship with Jesus and Onesimus begins following Jesus. And then what we see happening in the letter is Paul is actually sending Onesimus all the way back to Philemon and Colossae because he wants them to reconcile their relationship. And basically what we see happening in the letter is this. Paul opens up the letter to Philemon and he starts by talking about Philemon, I'm, I'm so excited about you. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so thankful for you because of all of the amazing ways that God is using you to love the people around you. I'm so thankful for you and 
and God is doing amazing things. And I'm also praying for you. Paul says, I'm praying for you all the time. Every time I pray, I remember you in my prayers and I'm praying that you'll deepen your, your faith in Christ and you'll come to a full understanding of all the good things we have in Christ. So he, he begins the letter very complimentary like that. And then it kind of shifts gears a little bit about halfway through and we see the tone of the letter change. And he says, you're doing all these amazing things, but there's this thing we gotta talk about. We gotta talk about you owning this slave named Onesimus. And he says, I'm gonna send him back to you because I want your relationship to be right. I want you to be reconciled to each other. But this is very important. When I send Onesimus back to you, I don't want you to treat him like you used to treat him. I want you to treat him in the same way that you would treat me, no longer as a slave, but now as a dear brother in Christ because things have radically changed now that they're both followers of Jesus. They're no longer to look at each other in the way the world would. They're to look at each other as brothers in Christ on equal standing. And then Paul's vision for them is they would go forward and do ministry together. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul's situation. So Paul had this fascinating situation we talked about a little bit where he's currently under house arrest. And we know from just reading a little bit about Paul, we know that it was Paul's desire to get to Rome. He wanted to get there because he knew and understood that Rome was the center, the center of like the entire known world at that time. And he knew that if he could get there and get the story of Jesus or the gospel out to the people in Rome, then he knew that it would get out to the rest of the world. So Paul ends up in Rome but not in the way he wanted. He ends up in Rome under house arrest and we see through him just accepting his circumstances and being okay with it and still being willing to be used by God, God used him in all these amazing ways to get the gospel out from Rome. And then last week we talked about Paul's prayer for Philemon. So Paul has this very specific prayer he prays for Philemon and he, he basically says this in his prayer. He says, look Philemon, I'm praying for you that you would be active in, in sharing your faith with other believers and having this, this biblical community and these deep biblical friendships. And the reason I'm praying that for you, the reason I'm praying that you would have these deep Christian relationships is so that you can come to a full understanding of all of the good things that we have in Christ. Because Paul recognized that when we make sacrifice for each other and we live in biblical community, that's actually how we really see Jesus is through each other. So that's what he was praying for Philemon, that he would be able to do that. And this morning, we're gonna keep going through the series, and we're gonna be looking at something, we're gonna be looking at all three of the characters' names in this letter, and I think it's very fascinating and very interesting when we see what their names mean and how it kind of applies to their lives. So it's, it's kind of cool and kind of fascinating. I think you guys will find it interesting. Um, so the first one we wanna look at, we talked about Saul. His name used to be Saul, and then it went to Paul. So before... When Saul was out persecuting Christians, this was his name. It was Saul, which meant desired, or it meant desired one. It meant that somebody would want to be like him, Saul. And then he was probably named, we think he was named after the first king of Israel. So the first king of Israel, or the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, that was Israel, their first king's name was King Saul. And the Bible talks about King Saul. It talks about how he was a good-looking man. He was like one of the best-looking men in the entire kingdom. And it says that he stood an entire head above everyone else. So he was like this desired one. And so a little bit of backstory. Basically what happened is the Jewish people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they saw all of the other people groups around them and they saw that they had a physical king and they wanted to be like them. They wanted a physical king too. So they went to God and said, God, would you give us a king? And God said, hey, you don't, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Let me be your king. But they kept pushing it and kept pushing it. And they wanted to have a physical king just like the people around them. So God ends up giving them Saul. He's the good-looking, 
king that people wanted to be like, but he ended up actually being a terrible king. And that's who Saul in the New Testament was named after. So his parents must have had some vision for his life that he would be this amazing leader of people. So again, Saul was the desired one. He was the first king of Israel. We'll put up this passage on the screen from 1 Samuel where this is where it talks about King Saul in the Old Testament. It says this. It says, Kish had a son named Saul. That's King Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. So he was a, he was a good-looking dude, apparently. Handsome, handsome man. And it says he was a head taller than anyone else. So that's where the name Saul comes from. It's desired one. It's the good-looking one. It's the, it's the man who stood like a full head above everyone else. That's who Saul was named after. And then we see a little bit of shift after Saul comes to Christ, after he has this encounter with Jesus and he begins following Jesus. We don't know exactly why he changed his name, but there's a very clear distinction we see in the New Testament when he goes from being called Saul to now being called Paul. And we can put Paul up on the screen. The definition of, of Paul is this. It's from the name Paulus. From the name Paulus, <clears throat> which meant small or humble. So you see, before when he was named Saul and he was a Jewish leader and he was trying to shut down Christianity and all of his arrogance, he was, he was named Saul, which meant desired one, the good-looking one, the one who stood a head taller than everyone else. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus and he humbles himself and then he starts going by the name Paul, which meant small or humble. So you can see this radical transformation in his life. And he even went so far that he began being called a different name to represent the new life that he was living. So when we think of that, <clears throat> we think of that context, that little bit of history of the Apostle Paul, we can see that names are an important thing to him. And he, he would have recognized the meaning of names. And when we look at the book of Philemon, it's really fascinating when we look at what Philemon means and what Onesimus means. And we can see that Paul is using a bit of a play on words in these passages. <clears throat> so first, if we look at Philemon, this is what Philemon means. This is the man he was writing to. It means this. It's from the Greek word phileo. From the Greek word phileo, which simply means to love or to have affection in regard of a very high order. Philemon's from the Greek word phileo, which means to love, to have affection in regard of a very high order. So if you look at the name, the meaning of the name Philemon, and then you look at what the apostle Paul is asking Philemon to do, he's simply saying, Philemon, look, I want you to live up to your name. I want you to live up to the name that you've been given. You're, the, you're the, the one that embodies love. I want you to love Onesimus. And I want you to have affection and regard of a very high order for Onesimus. So Paul is saying, Philemon, I want you to live up to this name that you have. And in verses 15 and 16 of Philemon, Paul talks about this a little bit. He says this. He says, perhaps the reason he, and that's, that's Onesimus, Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Perhaps Onesimus was separated from you for a little while so you might have him back forever. And even like right there, we see the Apostle Paul, what he's doing for Philemon, he's, he's trying to give him a different perspective. He's trying to help him see the situation differently. He's saying, hey, you know, perhaps he was, perhaps the reason he ran away and was separated, maybe God has a plan. Maybe God has something bigger in mind for your guys' relationship. And then he says, have him back forever. Then he goes on to say, no longer as a slave. You're not, you're not gonna treat him like a slave anymore because your brother's in Christ now. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. 
as a dear brother. I love that part, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So again, the Apostle Paul is saying Philemon, I want you to live up to your name. You, you should embody love. I want you to treat Onesimus that way. And I want you to accept him now as a brother. Maybe there was, maybe God had this bigger plan in play that you didn't see. So that's the meaning of Philemon is love. And then if we look at Onesimus, there's also kind of another play on words that Paul is using here. So Onesimus simply means useful. Onesimus means useful. And if we look at verses 10 and 11 from Philemon, this is what Paul writes. He says this. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So probably what happened is Paul led Onesimus to Jesus, so now he's his spiritual son. He's his son in chains. Then he says this. This is very, very interesting what he says here. Remember, Onesimus means useful, and he says this. Formally, or before, he or Onesimus, formerly Onesimus was useless to you. And I want to stop there for a second. Formally, this man Onesimus was useless to you. So he's saying when he was your slave, when you were using him, when he made your life easier, when you were making money from him, when he was in slavery to you, when you owned him, Paul is saying he was, he was actually useless to you then because none of those things are that important. Having money, having an easy life, those things are outward things and they're not that important. So Paul would say when you were using him, you know what? It wasn't even helpful. It wasn't even useless to you. But then he goes on to say this. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. So before, when he was your slave, when you were using him, Paul would say he was useless then. But now he's going to be useful to you because you're able to partner together for the kingdom of God and growing and expanding that and doing ministry together. You're now brothers in Christ and he's going to be useful to you, which is what the name Onesimus means. He is now useful to you. So Paul basically is asking Philemon and Onesimus. He's saying, I want you to live up to the names that you have. And he's giving them this very different perspective on the situation and on the world around them. He's like, you're now brothers in Christ. You don't treat each other and you don't look at each other the way other people do. We treat each other as brothers in Christ. And perspective, I think, is this very, very important thing. The way that we view the world, the way that we view each other. You could even say, like, think of the idea of looking at the world through certain lenses. I, I believe all of us look at the world through different lenses because of things that we've been through, right? So the family we were raised in, good things we've gone through, bad things we've gone through, all of those different things are gonna cause us to see the world through a certain set of lenses, and what Paul is doing with Philemon and Onesimus, he's helping them see each other through the, the lenses of Jesus, which is what we should all try and do. And when I, when I think of this idea of perspective, I think of this kind of funny and a little bit embarrassing story from when I was in my early 20s. So when I was in my early 20s, I thought I was quite the athlete. I loved to, I loved to play basketball. The reality was I wasn't really that good. Um, but I thought I was. And I was out with a bunch of my friends one night, late at night. We had just got finished playing in a tournament or some games or something like that. And we went out to Applebee's, probably in the Fairlawn area, and we were hanging out at Applebee's. And there was maybe 15 of us around this big, long table. I was on one end of the table, and my good friend was on the other end of the table. And there was a bunch of us there, and we were just talking about basketball, letting each other know, know how good we are and things like that. And we're sitting there talking, 
And from the corner of my eye, I'm on this side of the table, from the corner of my eye, I see the door open over here in the restaurant. And I, I glance over, but I don't really get a good look. I don't really have a good perspective on what's going on in this situation, but I glanced over, and I just saw this really big guy, this really big guy with these really big muscles walking in the door. He probably had to, like, duck to come in the door. And I'm sitting there in my basketball shorts, just getting back from playing basketball. And I didn't see who it was, but I looked over at my buddies, and I said this, I said, I could crush that guy. I'd crush that guy. You know, I'm just being cocky, being how I was in my early 20s. That guy would have no chance against me. And then my friend, who's on the other end of the table, who has a different perspective, looks over and sees who this is. And he responds this way. He says, you dummy. You dummy. That is LeBron James. And I'm like, oh, well, I hope he didn't hear what I said. Right? Because I just said I could beat the greatest basketball player on the planet. And that definitely wouldn't have happened. But I, you, see, you see how my friend, he was seeing from the right perspective. And what he was really doing, he was really just helping me see reality. And I think it's a very similar thing with the Apostle Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. He's saying, look, this is the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. Because you're now followers of Jesus Christ, this is the reality this is your new identity in Christ and I want you to live up to it. I wrote, I wrote this in my notes. I said this. I said our new identity in Christ takes precedence over everything else that defines us. So our new identity in Christ takes precedence. It's more important than everything else that defines us in our life. And we should see it that way. Our identity in Christ shouldn't just be another part of our identity. It should be the most important thing. And let me show you guys an example from myself. So I just, I just took a few minutes and I wrote down some of the things that define me and some of the things that give me my identity. So for example, I'm, I'm a father. So I have four crazy awesome kids, um, but they, they affect my life and they affect my identity. It's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of my life. That's one thing. I'm a father. I'm also, I'm also a husband. I'll be married 11 years in, in uh, August to my awesome wife, Jen, 11 years now. So that's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of my life. It's part of my identity. Um, I'm also a brother. So I have brothers and sisters. I have a big family. I'm an uncle. I'm a cousin. I'm all those things. In some ways, you could say I'm a little bit successful. That's like part of who I am. But then on the flip side of that, there's other, there's other areas of my life and other parts of my life where I'd say, you know, I failed. I'm a, I'm a bit of a failure if I'm being, if I'm being totally honest, right? Uh, one thing about me, just a simple thing, is I'm a, I'm a church leader. I happen to be a leader in a local church, but I'm also sinful. So there's ways that I screw up. Just like every single one of us here this morning, we all screw up. We all fall short of God's glory, and we all sin. We all make mistakes. That's just, that's just part of who I am. It's part of my identity. Um, I like to think that I'm an athlete. I couldn't beat LeBron James, that's for sure. But I like, I like to think that I'm an athlete. Maybe I was a little more of an athlete when I was younger, but I love sports. I love, I love watching sports and participating in sports. It's part of who I am. And then I have on here, I have, I have child of God. And this, when I'm being honest, this is how I tend to identify myself. It's like there's all of these different parts of me, and a child of God is just somewhere on the list. It's somewhere down the list, but it's not the biggest, most important thing. That's how I tend to view myself usually. It affects me sometimes and in some ways, but not all the time. Then I also put on here, I'm educated. Um, I'm an American. That's a, that's a big thing. I was born in the United States. I'm a U.S. citizen. 
And because of that, I'm gonna view the world a certain way because of the influences around me. And then I'm also a veteran. I served in the military, and that was a big part of my life. So again, it's gonna cause me to view the world a certain way. And all of us have all of these different things. There's probably a hundred more things I could put on this list just for me. And all of us have these things, these different experiences that make up who you are and make up your identity. But what if we didn't view it like this? What if we viewed it in a different way and we viewed it like this, where I'm a child of God first? So we have all of these things in our life that make up our identity. What if somehow we could let the fact that we're a follower of Jesus and we're a child of God, what if that could come to the forefront of our lives and we could then see the world and see ourselves and see the people around us through those lenses, through the lenses of being a child of God first. So let me, let me just show you back, we'll go back to the list. So these are, all, these are all like fine things and good, they don't go away, but what if they are secondary to being a child of God? And when those things are secondary, for example, if I'm a child of God first, and then a father, it's going to change the way I interact with my child, my children. It's gonna change the way I parent. It's gonna make a difference. If I'm a child of God first, and then a husband second, that being a child of God is gonna cause me to interact with my wife in a different way. I'm gonna be a different kind of husband if I'm viewing it through the lenses of being a child of God first. And then if you even, you even think of things like failure, Right? I, think, I think for a lot of us, failure can end up being something that defines us. We may have had like a, a huge failure in our life or there may be multiple failures in a row and what happens is that can be the definition of who we are. That can be part of our identity is I'm just a failure. I just mess up everything. I just screw up everything. But when we see ourselves as a child of God first, that's gonna be our identity. That's gonna be who we are not our failure. And then the same, the same thing with sin. All of us sin. We all are going to fall short of what God has for us. We're all going to sin. It's part of who we are as human beings. But if we see ourselves as a child of God first, we're going to understand that we're forgiven. And it's going to completely change the way we view our ch- each other and the way we view everyone around us. I, I put this in my notes. I said this. Being a child of God isn't just a piece of the puzzle it is the key to our identity. So being a child of God isn't just a piece of the puzzle, it's the key to our identity. And I, like I mentioned, we have four kids at home, so we have puzzles on our floor constantly. And we think of our identity, we think of what makes us up. Child of God, we shouldn't just see it as one of the pieces in the puzzle. It should be the key to everything, that unlocks everything about our identity. Guys, do you... Have you ever thought about or spent some time thinking about the way that God views you if you're a child of God? It's amazing, and it's this radical thing, the transformation that we've gone through from not following Jesus to following Jesus and the difference it makes in our lives. And, and the Apostle Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Put it up on the screen here. He says this. He says, for Christ's love compels us. It compels us. It Think of the idea of it pushes us forward. It's compelling us to do something. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the Apostle Paul is saying this. He's saying, 
Look, the one, that's Jesus, died for everyone. So he took all of our sins, all the, all the ways we've messed up and all the things we've done that are wrong, he took them upon himself and he went to a cross and died for our sins. And since he did that, he goes on to say, we should no longer live for ourselves. They should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So there's a big change that happens when we start following Jesus. Jesus takes our sin and nails him to the cross. And because of that, Paul's saying, we should no longer live for ourselves, that we should now live for the one who died for us. We should live for Jesus. And if we look at verse 16, it says this. He says, so from now on, since Jesus died for us, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So no longer do we look at each other the way the world does. We no longer regard or see people the way the world does. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And I I love this part. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's a follower of Jesus who's, who's been forgiven by God. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come the old has gone, the new is here. So there's, there's an old creation before we are followers of Jesus. That's the old self. Paul is saying that's now gone and the new is here. Something radically changes and we start following Jesus. And I, and I love the part on here where he's talking about we no longer regard people from a worldly point of view. We no longer see people that way as the world does. And I remember again in my, in my early 20s, um, I, had just gotten, I had just gotten back from Iraq, and I remember I, I felt myself beginning to view people this way, like from a worldly point of view that Paul is talking about. So I remember getting back from Iraq, and when I was there, when I was there I'd read all of these books on business and investing and all these like really cool things like that. And I got back, and I began pursuing those things pretty hardcore because I, I, I think I believed this lie. I believed this, this false thing that if I wanted to be if I wanted to be influential in life and I wanted to make a difference, I had to be successful and I had to be wealthy and I had to be known. And I, I was pursuing all of these things because I wanted to make a difference. And again, like, let, me, let me just say this, like pursuing like, business and making money and things like that, there's nothing, nothing wrong with those things. But for me, when I was doing this and I was in the midst of this, I could feel my heart shifting. So I was pursuing business like crazy. I, I bought some pro- investment properties, things like that. And instead of viewing the people around me as like people that I could lead to Jesus and I could serve and I could care for and viewing them the way Jesus would, I began to view people around me for how I could use them and how they could benefit me. And it, and it actually scared me like crazy. When I realized my heart was shifting that way, it scared me. And I had to make some pretty hard shifts and I had, to, I had to repent of that. I had to tell God I was sorry for doing that and change and shift directions a little bit. So again, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, we no longer view people from a worldly point of view. We're new creations in Christ. Guys, do you, do you feel like you identify, like do you feel like you see like your new identity in Christ? Do you feel like it makes a difference in your life. The old is gone and the new has come. So think about maybe the ways that you've sinned in your past and the things that you've done wrong and the things that, that frankly, you're embarrassed about or maybe, maybe the secret things that no one even knows about. The Bible is saying, Paul is saying this, if you're now a follower of Jesus, you've been forgiven of those things and they are now gone and you're this brand new creation. 
you're a child of God, which is this amazing, amazing thing. And then Paul talks about it even more in 1 Corinthians chapter six. I wanna read this for you guys. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, it's the people that lived in this town of the city of Corinth. And what he's doing here, he's, he's actually rebuking them a little bit, he's getting on them. And this is what he says, he says this, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. You hear that? It's, it's some pretty strong language. The very fact that you would sue each other, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. So he's writing to a church and he's like, look, you are Christians. You're followers of Jesus. You have a new identity. You should be above these things. And he's saying the very fact that you would sue each other shows me that you don't even understand. You don't even get what it means to have this new identity in Christ. And then he goes on to say this. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He's saying, I'd rather you be cheated and rather somebody take advantage of you than for you to try and get back at another Christian. He's saying, guys, we are above this. We are above this as children of God. Then he says, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And then in verse nine, It says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's some pretty strong language again. Don't you know that people that do wrong, people that sin, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not gonna spend eternity in heaven. And then he gives a list of ways that people do wrong. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, don't you know that people that sin, that fall short of God's glory, they're not gonna spend eternity in heaven. That's not happening. And that's, that's all of us in here, if we're honest. I sin all the time, right? In and of myself, I'm not going to have eternity in heaven. I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But then he brings in the good news here. And I, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. He says this. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. Some of you were sinners. Some of you were these things on this list. That is what some of you were. He's putting it in the past. He's saying that's what you were. And listen to what he says here. He says, but you were washed. You were made clean by Jesus. You were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were made holy by Jesus. You were sanctified. You were justified and that means, like, think of, think of a courtroom and you're in court and you owe this debt you can't pay for this crime you committed. That's Jesus coming in and paying the price. That's the idea of justified. We've been made just in the name of Jesus. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So again, he's saying, look, no, no sinners are gonna go to heaven, right? But that, that's where Jesus comes into the picture, and he takes, our cro- he takes our sin and he's nailed to a cross for our sin. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. So now, the way we used to be, Paul says, that's what some of you were. The sins in our past, the mistakes we've made, maybe even the things that have been done to us, those things are in our past now. And we have this new identity in Christ, which is this amazing thing. Guys, when I, when I think of Philemon and Onesimus, we don't know exactly how the story ends. It's not recorded in the Bible, but I love, I love to just think about it. And I, I wonder what it was like the first time that Philemon and Onesimus saw each other again. 
I just, can't, just imagine what it was like the first time they saw each other and the first time they saw each other through the eyes of Jesus with this new identity. So I wonder what it was like for Philemon when Onesimus, the slave that had run away, showed up on his doorstep and he hadn't seen him in a while. I wonder what it was like for the first time when he looked at this runaway slave and he said, okay, you know what? He's no longer a slave to me. He's a dear brother in Christ. Things have changed because of the power of Jesus. Must have been this amazing thing. And then even Onesimus' perspective. He had run away from this man and he shows up on his doorstep. That, that probably took some guts to do that, right? Shows up on his doorstep and I wonder what it was like for the first time to look at Philemon and no longer see him as his master, but see him as an equal brother in Christ. It must have been this amazing, amazing interaction. Would have been fun to see that happen. And when, I, when I've been studying and thinking through this letter, probably the thing that's come up the most to me is like asking the question, how do I view the people around me? How do I view the people around me, maybe individuals or maybe groups of people? Do I, you know, do I view people as lower than me? And I'd, ask, I'd ask you that same question. Is there anybody in your life, or maybe, maybe it's an individual or maybe it's a group of people that you view as lower than you? We can't do that as Christians, guys. At, at the very least, at the very minimum, we should view everyone as a creation of God because all of us are made in God's image at the very least. And when I think of times in my life when I've, when I've looked at somebody or looked at a group of people and said, you know what, they're just, they're useless. They're useless. You know, I gotta think of that. I gotta think, man, God forgive me for that. That is not the way that you view the people around you. So I would ask you guys that. Have you ever done that before? Do you struggle with that? Do you see people as useless? We need to pray that God would forgive us with that, for that and help, him, help us to see the world and see the people around us in the way that he does. Because our new identity in Christ is gonna reshape how we view everyone around us. And it's not gonna stop there. It's not just gonna stop with how we view people. It's also gonna change the way we interact and the way we interact with the people around us and care for them. We're gonna interact with them all as creations of God. And it makes this radical, radical difference in our lives and it causes us to live differently. And by the way, I'm not talking about living differently by putting stuff on Facebook. You know, I just can't imagine the Apostle Paul being here and just going out on a rant on Facebook. I think he would have asked us to do things that made real differences in the real people's lives around us. So again, how do you view the people around you? Do you view them like Jesus does? And I would ask you this. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, and I, I don't view anyone as useless. I view myself as useless. Maybe because things that you've done or mistakes that you've made, maybe you see yourself as useless. And guys, that is so not true. God created everyone here with a purpose and a plan for their lives. So you're not useless and God wants to use you in all kinds of cool ways if you'll just let him. Last thing I wanna say this morning is maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been checking this church thing out for a while, investigating Jesus. Maybe you're here on your own. Maybe somebody drug you here. I don't know, I just say, just number one, thanks for coming. And then even think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. What would it be like if you could leave all of your sins and all of the ways that you've fallen short and give your life over to Jesus and have this new identity in Christ. It's this amazing thing that's really impossible 
to explain. So I just encourage you, just keep investigating that. If we can help you with that in any way, we would love to. There's this thing we have called the connection card. If you wanna, if you wanna talk to anybody here, any of the staff or anything like that, the best way to do that is to grab that connection card and check the box about having a spiritual conversation. We would count it like a joint, a privilege to have that conversation with you. We would love to do that with you. All right, as the band comes up, let me go ahead and pray for us.